Amen. Well, if you want to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Hebrews as we read our scripture for today, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we are. Hebrews chapter 10. I want to read down to the end of the chapter because um, it's going to give us the broader context. I'm going to be focusing today on verses 32 to 34, but I just thought for context's sake we would read the whole passage. Beginning in verse 32, this is what the Word of the Lord says. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by uh, coming, becoming shares with those who are so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a, little, a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Let's pray one more time together as a church. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much once again for your word. We thank you for this precious, precious truth of Scripture that we have set before us. And Lord, today we just ask that you would help us to mingle the word with faith, that we would exercise our faith on the truth of Scripture, that we would believe it, that we would know it, and that we would trust it with all of our heart. Lord, help us, Lord, as this text of Scripture is going to remind us, help us to endure, help us to believe, help us not to throw away our confession, not to throw away our reward because it has great, great, or our endurance because it has great reward, Lord, our confidence. Help us, Lord, to endure to the end, as our Lord Himself said, so that we would be saved. Give us perseverance and strength, Lord. We confess before you now openly that we are weak and feeble in and of ourselves. Let it be that our boast is not in anything but the Lord. And so, Father, uh, humbly we come to you for mercy and grace, and gratefully we thank you because you are the God of all comfort, and you give us grace, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Enduring until the end. That's really the subject of the passage that is in front of us. And if you will recall, it was actually Jesus who made the statement in uh, Matthew chapter 10 that the one who has endured until the end will be saved. That's a remarkable statement by Jesus to his disciples, preparing them to launch into a life of perseverance and endurance. But really, it, it, it is a, 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 a statement of realism because... What it does is it, 
it shows us that in our life as believers, we are going to have many trials and tribulations. Our endurance, our perseverance will be put to the test. And so this is why it's so important for us not only to see and to hear and to know the message of Hebrews, but to take heed to it, to obey it, and to live in it. Really, what we're looking at today is what the Reformers called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The idea that God, although God is a sovereign God, although God has ordained all things whatsoever comes to pass, as the great confessions of the faith tell us, Nevertheless, God has also ordained a real genuine means to the end. And that means to that end is our own personal effort and perseverance. The idea that if, as Paul says, if we work out our salvation in fear and in trembling, we know that it is God who is at work in us. And so that is really what the balance of the doctrine of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints is all about. There is a tension there, but it is not a tension of polar opposites. It's a tension of symmetry where God in His sovereignty ordains our perseverance for our eternal good. That's what it is. That's one of the things I love about Christianity is it tells us the truth. We live in a world where so many lies are pumped in our direction constantly, nonstop. Matter of fact, it was the great theologian Carl F. Henry who said that, and he was observing a generation that was just coming out of the, the, um, the advent of the television. The 60s, the 70s, where, you know, they didn't have HDTV. <laughs> but back then they had commercials. And Carl F. Henry said that from the youngest ages, people are being trained from the youngest ages possible to disregard propositional truth because statements are made, promises are made, ideas are presented, different offers are being presented to the consumer where they don't make good on those promises. But this is, a, this is an offer that God is going to make good on. He is telling us to endure, to persevere because our confidence has great reward. And guess what? God is not going to rip us off. He's going to deliver exactly what He says He promises to deliver, and that's exactly what our faith is all about, what our perseverance is all about. You know, in, in, in one way, we can, we can outline the rest of the book of Hebrews as one giant call to endurance. <laughs> We've looked at the foundation of our endurance. We looked at the foundation of our faith, the foundation of our salvation. And that is the, that is the, the life-saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, His once-for-all atonement on the cross. And that's what the new covenant is based upon. But now the author is going to call us to endure in the context of this new covenant that we find ourselves in. And what he's going to do is he's going to point us to this. In chapter 11, he's, we're going to look to the faithful men and women of old who held on to their faith and persevered until the end faithfully as examples for us to follow. In chapter 12, we're going to look unto Jesus, we're going to look to the Father's discipline, and we're going to look up to the new Jerusalem as we persevere in faith. And finally, in chapter 13, we are going to look around at the contemporary examples of one another. That's the way that Hebrews is lined out. And so one chapter after another, 
all for the purpose of God, if I can quote the words of Hebrews 13 here, equipping us so that we would be fully equipped for the Christian life. That's what's going on, and that's what's happening. So how does one succeed in persevering? I tell you what, you remember the overarching context Going all the way back, if you would, look with me to verse 24. It says, Let us consider how to stimulate one another for love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we see the day drawing near. Verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment. Stop there. In other words, the preceding context is about apostasy, the terror of apostasy, the threat of falling away, and it is a real threat, and it is something that we all have to come to grips with, that there, that there, there is a real admonition that we must feel. The sovereignty of God is not for us to be fatalistic, to say, oh, God is sovereign, don't worry about me, I'll be okay. If he saved me, he's going to keep me. That is not the way that one perseveres to the end. You know how Paul persevered to the end? By fear and trembling. Paul persevered to the end by utilizing all the means of grace that God gave him. Uh, Hebrews right here is giving us one. Go to church. <laughs> a pastor, you know pastors love to say that. Go to church. It's a real means of grace. It is the way that God is going to keep you accountable, keep you in the kingdom, keep you humble, and keep you productive in the Christian faith. There's no such thing as a Christianity apart from the church of God. John Calvin said, if the church is not your mother, then God is not your father. It's that simple. You cannot have a rogue Christianity where you exist on your own little island wandering around in the Bermuda Triangle somewhere of spirituality. It doesn't work. You must have the brethren, the church. Not going to be the best church, maybe. Maybe you don't like your church. Well, I hope you like your church. <laughs> I come to realize that I'm preaching to a wider audience even than us in here uh, through media, through technology, through, you know, that, that whole realm um, that I know nothing about. But I just know, I mean, I've gotten feedback from people in the Philippines from something I said in a sermon, and so I'm grateful for the gracious opportunity to exhort the broader uh, evangelical church. And a lot of Christians, they don't like the churches they go to. They put up with the churches that they're at. And, uh, but it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, look, we're not looking for perfect churches. We're looking for true churches. Our church is not perfect, and if you're looking for the perfect church, there's the door. Our church will never be perfect. It will never be a perfect environment for you, for your family, for your kids. We will always struggle. We were always going to seek to be purified, to get better, to be more effective, to be more loving, to be more intentional about what the Bible teaches. But we are not called to have a perfect church. We're called to have a pure church, a, a, a true church, and then we're called to be committed to the church. Committed to the church. Remember, brothers and sisters, the church is less like an art gallery and more like an like a emergency room that you'd walk into where people are hanging on by a thread. On a spiritual level, that is how desperate we really are for God, whether we want to admit it or not. I want to give you, I want to give you several principles here that are being set in front of us that I think will help us 
to be successful in this whole realm of endurance and perseverance. I need that. You need that. We all need that. We need to bolster it because here's our faith. Because here's the thing. It's not just about sticking it out in Christianity. It's how do I endure with gladness? How do I endure with joy? How do I endure so that my religion doesn't turn into some superficial rote routine that I do week after week and I just kind of sort of muster the faith to do a devotion with the family at home to teach a Bible study that I'm just kind of barely eking by. But I believe, as Jesus himself taught, that he came to give us life abundantly. And so I think part of enduring is that we endure with a certain attitude, that we endure with a certain perspective, that we endure with a certain joy that we'll get to in this text. But number one, notice what the author does first. First, in order to renew their strength under their present circumstances, the first thing that he does is he calls them to remember the past. Look at verse 32. Remember the former days. After, he says, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. Now, stop there for a second. Because one of the things that he wants them to remember is he wants them to remember their initial time period when they were enlightened. In other words, when they were converted. And this is so healthy for the soul. To remember the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, when you were illuminated, when you were enlightened. Do you remember that? Well, some of you don't have the type of testimony that others have. I have one of those Damascus Road testimonies. Overnight, light and darkness from old man to the new man. I was dead. I was made alive. It happened in a moment. It happened in an instant. I can point to the very day. I can almost point to the very hour. I can tell you where I was and what I was doing when God saved me and humbled me. But some of you don't remember it that way. Some of you... Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you thought you were always a Christian. And you don't really remember the time or the period, what specific day, but all of a sudden you realize that you made a new, fresh commitment to Christ, and all of a sudden you remember that your faith became real. I have had, I've heard so many testimonies along those lines. You know, in church membership, we hear the testimony of the members, and one of the things that always makes me marvel is just to see the work of God in a person's life. Some person, you know, uh, some people come in here and they have kind of an experience like mine. And others, they say, you know what, I don't really remember when I got saved. Um, I just remember somewhere around high school or college, God, something happened. I just got more serious. Next thing you know, but now there is present faith in Jesus Christ. But Scripture is calling us to remember this whole idea of being enlightened. To be enlightened, I guess we could say, is just congruent with conversion. To be enlightened means that God makes us aware of the truth that Jesus Christ came to reveal. He is the light. When He came into the light, no one is enlightened apart from Him, John 1.5. He is the light of the world. He came so that His people would not dwell in darkness. We were in darkness. Part of reflecting on your own enlightenment is to confess that you were in darkness. You were in darkness with respect to salvation. You were in darkness with respect to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You were in darkness with respect to the, to the church of God. I know I was. 
I know before I was a Christian, I was in complete darkness about those things. I, I mocked the church. I scoffed at the church. I laughed at the idea of church and Christians. I laughed at the idea of, 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 of God and believing and salvation and the Bible. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent person. And I was in the dark. And that's what enlightenment does, is it brings you out of the dark and into the light so that we would walk by the light. This is what the, the ministry of Jesus is all about, that you come into enlightenment, that you come to see the light of salvation. Isaiah chapter 9, which Jesus attributed to himself, says the people will see, the people who sat in darkness will see a great light. I tell you, until a person is in Christ, they are sitting in darkness. Oh, the misery and the madness of it. They're sitting in a state of habitual darkness, oblivious to the impending doom of their own lives. Think of it, how maddening it is. Think of how uh, just insane the darkness is. There you are, a whistler in the dark. You think you have all the, the time in the world. You think you have all the health in the world. You think you have all the opportunity in the world. You think you have all the strength in the world. And then something happens where you're brought up sharp and you've been brought in, 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 in contact with your own frailty, with your own feebleness, with your own limitations. You're made to see that you are, you are human. And everything that you were told on television was a lie. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You're not great enough. And people may like you, but you still need God. You still need salvation, and that is exactly what being enlightened is all about. But you know, as the author here calls them to remember their enlightenment, it also highlights for us the danger of forgetfulness. And think about it. When was the last time you saw it? or when you sat down, when was the last time you really thought deeply about your conversion? When was the last time you sat and you really sat down to thank God for how He brought you out of darkness and into light? In Deuteronomy 32, 18, which is really interesting because um, he just quoted Deuteronomy 32 in the previous section in verse 30, uh, here the author of Hebrews, and really Deuteronomy 32 also brings out this idea of forgetfulness. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 32, 18, you neglected the rock who begot you, and you have forgotten the God who gave you birth. You see that? In Scripture, the concept of being a forgetful person is not a good idea. James uh, likens the person that goes back into sin as a person who forgot who he was, as if a person that looked in the mirror and walked away and just forgot who he was in the mirror, that's the person that doesn't obey the Word of God, that doesn't understand who they are in Christ. But see, ultimately, he wants to remind them, yes, of their initial conversion, but he wants to remind them of what their conversion cost them. Look at the text back in Hebrews 10. It says, then, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering. This is a church that understood what it means to suffer. This is a church that was surrounded by persecution. How did it happen? Well, because they were Jewish, they were 
ostracized for their profession of faith in Christianity or in Christ. And in fact, the reproaches are going to be highlighted here. And one scholar, let me read you what Philip Hughes says about this in terms of this initial generation who converted to Christianity out of the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. Listen to this. Public witness, in fact, tended to be more uh, perilous for converts from Judaism than those of the Gentile origin. For non-Jewish society was in general open to and tolerant of great variety of religion, religious cults of the time, in a manner that could be expected from the adherence, excuse me, in a manner that could not be expected of the adherence of the exclusive faith of Judaism. See, what he's saying is this, the old Greco-Roman culture was liberal. And if you wanted to believe in some deity named Jesus, that's up to you. A Greco-Roman would carely, you know, really not care. They would, they would, they would kind of give you that and say, whatever, if, if that's the deity you want to worship, fine. There's a million deities to pick from. But Judaism believed in an exclusive faith in one God. He says here, for a Jew to confess the faith of Christ crucified would bring upon him a detestation and an obloquy, which is like a public condemnation, from his compatriots, the ruination of his business, and even expulsion from family circles. Wow. This brings us to the second point. Not just to remember your past, remember your conversion, but next is this. Remain faithful in your present sufferings. This is what the message of Hebrews is all about. But, but notice what, what Philip Hughes has suggested here, because I hear connections and echoes to our contemporary Christian life today. I mean, have you heard of any Christian business owners that are suffering because of their faith? I have. I tell you what, in our culture, you don't bake a certain cake, you get in trouble. Uh, you don't do business with a certain sort, sort of ethic, you get publicly condemned. Uh, this is happening more and more and more. And how about this? Even expulsion from family circles. Now, understand that in the first century, this is much, much more, um, this is much more significant, I think, even than today. In the first century, people didn't have cars. There weren't freeways. There weren't planes, trains, and automobiles. There weren't, ce- there weren't cell phones. People weren't connected with a billion other people on Facebook. Okay? What happened was is that you dwelled as a, fa- as a family among your family in little small villages, and everybody knew everybody, and everybody was connected to everybody. And you can walk here and there and immediately be at your aunt's house or your uncle's house. It was a much more tightly knit community. Now think of the, think of the scorn of being in that tight-knit community in that little village context and being put out of the family circle. You imagine how awkward, can you imagine how you would be made to feel? You would be completely ostracized from the very people that you love. When Jesus was, um, when Jesus was, uh, or when the Jews were plotting to arrest Jesus, you can see this, for example, in John chapter 11, after the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they finally made the decision, arrest him, seize him so we can kill him. 
uh, publicly identifying yourself with Jesus at that stage of his ministry meant that you would be put out of the synagogue. That was, uh, that was basically the same thing as being expelled from your own family. To be put out of the synagogue was important because the, syn- the synagogue was such a central feature to a Jewish community that for you to be publicly shamed in that way, to be put out of the synagogue, left you with no recourse. So the author of Hebrews is saying, remember when you were put out. Look at the language that he used here. It's actually quite severe. He says, remember you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And then verse 33, he begins to define it. He says, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Stop there. There is a personal persecution that these people underwent. That word there where he says you were made a public spectacle, that comes from the Greek word theatrizo. That's where we get the word theater. In other words, in the ancient Greek utilization of this term, it meant literally to be brought up on stage for the fact or for the purpose of being humiliated. I mean, really graphic language. You were paraded around as fools. You were made fun of. You were scorned. You were, you were ridiculed for your faith publicly. It says through reproaches and through tribulation. In other words, it wasn't just insult. You see that? The reproaches are the insults. Fine. But even further than the insults were tribulations. What does that mean? What that means is that they actually affected your life. You know, right now, if you witness to a, you know, to a co-worker or family member that's not saved and you begin to share with them about Jesus, and they might condemn you for it, they might laugh at you, they might curse you out, they might say something to you. But really, I mean, they haven't really affected your life in the sense of, you know, you're still going to go home, you're still going to get in your car, you're still going to jump on your cell phone and text your Christian friend or sister and tell them, man, that was a great encounter with so-and-so. But this costs them more than that. It says reproaches and tribulation, and here he comes with the tribulation. He says partly by, by becoming shares with those who were so treated. Wow, you see that? They were associated with people who were being persecuted, and that made life increasingly difficult. I tell you what, persecution is happening in all sorts of different forms. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, just to show you this, that whether it's Jewish persecution, whether it's Greek persecution, whether it's Islam persecution, whether it's LGBT persecution, whether it's liberal persecution, whether it's, it's, it's communism or fascism or whatever, or being persecuted by an evangelical church that is largely compromised and no longer shares your dogmatic views. That's increasing. You know, when communism first spread in Russia, it was the churches and the pastors of the mainstream churches who began to turn in the small churches and the faithful pastors that wouldn't budge on the Word of God. It was the big mainstream churches who were persecuting the little churches. You, I've seen evidence of that already in our culture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You see, it comes from all different all different sides. For you, uh, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. It says, For you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. 
For you also endure the same, conf- the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they are always filling up the measure of their sins, but, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. In other words, Paul is saying, look, we suffer from different people, but at the end of the day, we suffer the same type of suffering. We have the same common bond in suffering. I, I, I dare say that there's probably a, a, such a deep, intimate fellowship between brethren that have suffered and been persecuted together. It doesn't matter if you've been persecuted under a Muslim regime or, or if you've been persecuted under communism. I tell you what, when you've suffered for Christ, it deepens everything. It deepens everything. Tell you what happened in the first century. Eventually, what happened in Rome was that the emperors began to demand worship. Uh, Nero uh, and the others, Domitian and others, they began to demand emperor worship, that you bow down and you worship Caesar as a god, and that you take a pinch of incense and throw it on the, on the pagan altar and confess with your mouth, Curios Caesar, Caesar is Lord. And because some Christians refused to do that, they lost their life. See, what happens is Roman culture becomes so vile that eventually the church has nowhere to go. So they begin to re- recoil from the culture. In other words, if we think our culture today is decadent, let me remind you of what was going on in the first century with the apostles and the early church. You know, we understand that television today and media today is inundated with immorality every, everywhere. You can't watch a commercial with some kind of innuendo or some sort of immoral indecency. But think of it this way. In Rome, you were surrounded, in, in a sense, with public pornography everywhere. You couldn't go to a mall, you couldn't go to a store, you couldn't go to a shop without being confronted with depictions of full nudity and sexual acts in public. Okay, I'm sorry if that disturbs you, but understand the oppression that our brothers and sisters were under in the first century. Severely oppressed by the culture so that they recoiled away from the theater, away from the sporting events, away from uh, 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 fashion, away from entertainment. It got so bad that the, that, that the culture finally said, who are these Christians? They're, they're weirdos. They don't want to do anything. They don't want to go to the theater. They don't want to go to the Colosseum. They don't want to see barbarians in the Colosseum murder each other with swords. What's wrong with these guys? Don't they know what real entertainment's all about? And, and what about their fashion? Why are their women dressed like that? They're so, why do they cover up? Don't they understand? Be free and, 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 and express yourself. And folks, nothing has changed. That's why the, relevant, the message of Scripture is so relevant, because in essence, the nature of man has not changed. He is still a sinner. He's still depraved. And the, 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 the issues that we're facing today are the same issues that they were facing yesterday or a thousand years ago. Look at what it says. He says, you became sharers with those who were so treated, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. See that? So it got so bad that, brothers and sisters, people were going to jail. 
This is what I mean by he wants them to reflect on what their conversion cost them, what they had endured, what God had brought them out of, so that now under the present circumstances they would endure even more, all the more. People are literally being incarcerated. Their property is being seized. I tell you, this is persecution on a level that we know nothing about. I, I, we, you know, are we going to get to that part, to, to that point in our culture? I don't know. Are Christians at that point in other cultures? Absolutely. They're already there. And I tell you what, I was talking to a friend who uh, has a passion for Muslim ministry, and he was doing some um, evangelism in a Muslim country, and they arrested him. And he said they threw him in a, a jail cell. And he said, I'll tell you what, right there and then, all my theology, in one sense, out the window. <laughs> you know, all the doctrine and the theology and all the books and all the scene and all this, out the window, and all I had was a, a prison cell and Christ. And it was really time to get, get in touch with, do I believe this? Thankfully, he was let out so that we had breakfast the other day. But he wants to go back. I've, I've talked to you about him before. I don't want to use his name because of the nature of his ministry. But he wants to go back. And this is one of the most humble, dare I say, he's a beautiful soul. No guile. Just a precious man of God. And he can't wait to go back to a Muslim country full time, full time, and finish his course. Whatever it costs him, he doesn't care. And... Um, so that is still so contemporary for us today. We're totally in touch with this today. But the question coming back to us from the book of Hebrews is this. In the midst of that kind of oppression, that kind of suffering, we know a little, but a little of it, but we do know it. And let's extend this beyond just persecution. And let's extend this to everyday suffering, everyday trials, everyday affliction. The question coming back to us is, where is our joy in the midst of it all? I don't think there can be anything more precious. Can I say it this way? There's nothing more beautiful than to encounter a suffering Christian, a Christian that's going through severe hardship, and yet they have the fragrance and the aroma of the love and of the joy and of the glory of God on their face, and they're telling you how much they love God and they're thanking God. That's otherworldly. And that's kind of, because here's the thing that we need to ask ourselves is, how did they do that? <laughs> if, you know, if, you can, if you know who you are, if you're honest with yourself, if you look forward to say, okay, when I get to that point, if God forbid I should ever suffer severely in that way, am I going to be able to keep it together? Or am I going to lose my witness? Am I going to lose my faith? Am I going to lose my faith? See, some people come to Christianity for one simple reason. They think it's going to meet their felt needs. Oh, we'll come and we, we'll, we'll worship and we'll sing the songs up on the screen all day long as long as the Lord provides me with wealth, health, and prosperity. But the minute He begins to afflict me like Job, how many curse God and die? This is why it's so important for us, brothers and sisters, to get in touch with this. How do we have this joy? Well, the final point is this. Not just remember our conversion. Not just remain faithful in our present sufferings. 
but also realize the unfading joy of our inheritance. Look, look at the text. It says here, you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. That's the virtue, that's the character that we want. It says, it says here, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. See, it only happens, that type of otherworldly, transcendent mentality, joy, virtue, character, that will only happen when a person has true theology, when a person really understands and really knows the truth. Because notice it is based on knowledge. He says here, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession. It all begins with what you know. If you understand that, then you'll understand this glorious truth I'm about to tell you. That the people in the book of Hebrews that are being described here were not superhumans. They were not super spiritual. They were not super Christians. They were, they were I don't want to call you average or call myself, but they were average Christians. They didn't have some special spiritual gift. They didn't have some special anointing. They didn't have some special power that we will never have in our own lives. No, these are average Christians in the sense of they're normal Christians just like you and I. They had all the resources available to them that we do, and we have all the resources available to us that they had available to them. And that should inspire us to say, well, then this virtue is something that we can obtain. How? It begins with knowledge. Know that you have a better possession. But of course, like all knowledge in Scripture, it's not enough to be a hearer of the Word. You must be a doer of the Word. And so I challenge us with the simple words of Jesus. Turn with me. Turn there with me. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Isn't it amazing? After you go through all the technical, forensic, legal, didactic, exegetical arguments of the book of Romans and the forensic righteousness of justification and sanctification and propitiation and redemption and all of that, at the end of the day, when life gets real, guess what? We need the simple, childlike words that Jesus spoke. This is simple, clear. We don't need to add all these arguments to it. Look how simple Jesus put, the, put the, uh, the situation for us. Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up your treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves, or where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Proverbs says, out of the heart issue forth the matters of life. Guarding the heart is the optimum objective for the Christian. Know the heart. Keep your heart in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. Put a guard over your heart. Do not be so allured after the allucrements of this world. Do not be so drawn in by all of the glitz and the glamour that you see all around you, brothers and sisters. Do not covet those things. Why? Not only because Paul says covetousness 
Covetousness is idolatry. But because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there is your heart. Because Jesus says, if you go on storing your treasure in this world and seeking to find your ultimate ambitions in this life, guess what? You will lose the capacity to treasure a transcendent treasure that will bring you everlasting, unfading joy. If the things are taken away from you, if opportunity is taken away, if material possessions are stripped away from you like they were here, the, it says here, the, the, the seizure, or the word you can translate it, the plundering of your property. Oh, I know right now for us, much of this is in the abstract. But I beg of you not to allow your heart to be drawn away by the things that you have. Hold them with an open hand. Your house is not your house. So here, I want to quote John Piper from memory so you know it's a paraphrase. He said, live in such a way that when people look at your life, they see the things in your life is not what you live for. Eat food in such a way that when people see you eat food, they know that you do not live for food. Right? Make money so that when people see the way you make money, that you live not for money, but for the one that is blessing you with the money. You see how it works? In other words, understand and recognize that everything that you have is a blessing from God. Give it to God. Use it for God. Uh, turn with me to another text, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to quote Paul here, the Apostle Paul, in a particular context where people were actually giving up on marriage because they thought the last day was imminent and why get married? Why be a husband? Why be a wife? Where Paul says, no, 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 you need to correct that. But he does... He does teach them how to have these things, but with an open hand. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, oh, we can begin in verse 29. He says, This I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had not. Wow, that's a controversial statement. Basically what he's saying is this. Be married in such a way that when people see your life, they, they, they see that your wife, your husband is not uppermost in your heart. God is, right? And he says, and those who weep as those, those that did not weep, as those that rejoice as though, as though they did not rejoice, and those, watch this here, and those who buy as though they did not possess, as those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of, of this world is passing away. Why does the Bible call us to this transcendent perspective on life? It's because the world that you now see around you is actually suffering decay. Go no further than your own body to know that that's true, right? <laughs> Me and Trish were laughing. She's pregnant. Not going to tell you what it is. And something happened last night. Something on my body hurt. Well, several things on my body hurt. I looked over at Trish and said, how are we going to do this? We're so old now. My body is falling apart. I mean, every day it's a different thing. And I go to the gym, I promise you. I work out. And Trish, you know, she holds me accountable to some things about, you know, health and wealth. And, no, I'm just joking. But 
it's like no matter how hard you try, you can't keep your health up. No matter how hard you try, things still keep breaking down. It's like no matter how hard you try at work, at business, you still have problems. You still have issues. My wife and I were watching a, a, a show on real estate. They were showing the couple in the United States, they have the, they're building the largest house in the nation. I don't know, it's 50,000 square feet or something crazy. And they invested millions and millions and millions of dollars into this house. I mean, this house is extravagant as all get out. And guess what? Do you know what? The show was about the fact that they don't care about the house anymore. What? I mean, you threw all these millions of dollars into this house. You don't care about the house. What happened? Their daughter overdosed on prescription drugs. And you know what that did to them instantly? It brought them to the realization of what really matters in life. But brothers and sisters, here's the thing. For us, what really matters in life is not simply our loved ones, but what really matters in life is the kingdom of God. That's what really matters in this life. Therefore, just like those folks, we have to hold everything, no matter how, how large or how small, we have to hold everything with an open hand because you don't know when or why or how God is going to take it from you. It's that simple. I, I want this because this is going to make a church, if we take heed to this, this is going to make a church of tough Christians that are fortified, that are ready, that are shielded, that are, that are prepared to suffer. Sorry if you don't want to suffer. But the reality is, is let's face it, every one of us, every last one of us is going to suffer. It's coming. And it can come in a phone call. It can come when you're in old age. I did convalescent home for many, many years, and I, I visited old folks in their, and, and, and their retire and, you know, in the... Um, a convalescent home ministry, and I tell you what, most of these old people, nobody comes see them anymore, nobody visits them anymore, their children have forgotten all about them, and they're just laying there, and they're talking to Emilio. Who's that? Who's that guy? He visits me every week. I don't know who he is. I used to visit an old Dodger. I used to preach the gospel to him week after week, begging this guy to get saved. He eventually died, and I don't think he got saved. But I tell you what, whether now or then, Trials are promised unto us. Jesus said in this world, you're going to have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, which means the same thing as he said in Matthew 6. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world means you value knowing me more than what you're going to go through in this world. And if that's true, you will overcome with him. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I can talk about this over and over and from different perspectives and different scriptures, but ultimately, help us to believe it. Help us to put our faith and our trust in the kingdom ethic that Jesus is teaching there. That where our, heart, where our treasure is, there is our heart. And so help us to be sober-minded. Help us to be vigilant. Help us to be prayerful and watchful. And help us, Lord, not to be seduced into materialistic narcissism. But, oh, Lord, keep our eyes on Jesus. As we run the race, help us to fix our eyes on Him because He is our forerunner. 
He has gone in before us, which means we are following in behind Him. Oh, Lord God, give Your people faith and give Your people strength to live otherworldly, to live not as the world lives, to experience a peace not that the world experiences, to experience a joy that is not of this world, and to have a treasure that is not found anywhere, anywhere in this world, in all the world, because our treasure is in the world to come. Thank you, Father, for this. We pray you would seal this to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.